Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global Podcast. I'm here today with a very exciting guest, Eugene Wei. Eugene, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, excited to be here. We have a lot, lot to cover, but I want to start with an idea you've been thinking about a little bit uh, as it relates to sort of the risk-reward calculus for entrepreneurs and as it relates to the idea of ambition in San Francisco, uh, perhaps broadly contrasted with, you know, Tyler Cowen's idea of the complacent class. Mm, Go. Definitely. (laughs) Tyler's idea of the complacent class, I guess the opposite of the complacent class is this uh, sense of ambition. And it's interesting if you look at countries around the world and, you know, I wish we had a measure for ambition. We have proxies, you know, the number of people that start companies and things like this. But it does seem like a lot of the health of economies around the world is tied to the the mean and the peak levels of ambition in that country. And so Silicon Valley traditionally has been the place that I think you know, has uh, its most unique quality, I guess, is its ability to foster just a huge high level of ambition. I've lived in all places around the world, all over the U.S., in different major cities. And, you know, you meet ambitious people everywhere. You meet ambitious people. I've met ambitious people in Seattle, in New York, in Los Angeles, in Chicago. What's striking about the Bay Area is that the ambition here is sort of at an absurd level, and it's kind of just a generalized ambition, right? I've met ambitious people in the East Coast, in New York, but a lot of the ambition there seems tied to financial wealth. And I've let, met a lot of ambitious people in L.A., but, you know, a huge part of the driving force there seems to be fame. It's only in San Francisco that I, you know, meet people who just have crazy ambitions in all directions. You know, people who want to replace healthcare for people who want to uh, help people live forever, people who want to colonize Mars or switch us all to, you know, a new education system, that type of ambition. And so that's one of the things that keeps sort of America dynamic. And so the question is, how do you, you know, replicate that or foster that, especially in countries, if you look at countries around the world that sort of hit sort of a flat line of GDP growth, you get the sense that a lot of countries in late stage capitalism hit kind of a a flat line. They start to see the population decline. GDP growth is flat. Wages stagnate. And if you go to these places, there's, you know, life is still great. People are still eating well, enjoying life, but a lot of the talk seems to be about fashion and food and things like that. And I think that needs to be balanced with ambition because, you know, I think a lot of human progress is tied towards that level. So one thing Silicon Valley does really well is it says, hey, look, we want to take your ambitious dreams and have you take a shot at them. The whole VC industry and everything is built around that. And certainly we uh, make heroes out of our super ambitious dreamers here. But one thought um, I have is that I think this general idea of lowering the risk of entrepreneurship and lowering the friction of entrepreneurship deserves sort of more uh, study and examination. You know, if you're not the type of person that might want to be an entrepreneur, no matter what obstacles are in the way, we still might want to encourage you to be an entrepreneur. And so I don't think we've explored yet (laughs) enough how to make entrepreneurship just sort of a natural thing that many, many more people attempt. 
you're starting to see that now in VC, right? You have things like what Altman is doing. Um, you have things like Stripe and Atlas that make it easier. You know, like a whole bunch of efforts that I think are, are really important that we should keep pushing on. Because I actually think there are many more people I meet that are smart who should be entrepreneurs uh, than are today. You know, I would probably even put myself in that class in an earlier stage of my life. I never would have thought of taking that on. You know, it's bewildering the first time you go through it. It can be lonely. It can be stressful. But a lot of that can be simplified. So I wonder if there is a um, remember the YC Fellowship used to give you know 20K. I wonder if there's a way to even get started with people like $5,000 or, or some amount because some of it's some of it's just a little bit of money, but other it's um, just like a put like a someone believes in you or, or you even have a social content. Like I won this fellowship. They give me like a thousand dollars, but only if I started a company, I, I wonder if there are like low cost ways to just give people a little bit of push. Yeah, certainly. I think that's part of it. I also just think like you look at today, think about how many people got turned to selling things just because of eBay or, you know, how many people, you know, now are doing direct consumer retail brands because of Shopify and things yeah. like that. I mean, it's like that, but for entrepreneurship, I think there's just many more things that could be done to make it simpler. And I think, you know, that might be way if we, if we take the number of people starting companies as one measure of ambition in a country, uh, that might be one way to just raise that level. You know, it's interesting. You talk about hero, the hero worship and we certainly have that, but it, it, it seems that it's more, I don't know if nuance is the right word, but their vicissitudes are higher. Like if you look at Elon, for example, in the last six months or year, pretty drastically different in terms of how he's been perceived throughout his entire career. Like imagine if Steve Jobs was still alive, if he, his reign was today and some of the, we knew about him, what we knew, you know, from his book, how we might treat Steve different or look at, look at him different. Or if he was on Twitter, what, <laughs> what he might be saying, like, what do you think? Like, I imagine if, if, if Elon's reign was uh, 15 years ago, like it would just be hundred percent positive or so. But I feel like because of Twitter, because of the changing dynamics and how we view people today, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I actually think, look, certainly it's not just for people like Elon. Everybody today is under a spotlight if you choose to be a public figure. The search cost of finding something that someone has said or, or done in their life is dramatically lowered by the internet, right? You know, uh, Amara's law, the kind of like we overrate the impact of technology in the short run and we underrate it in the long run. I certainly there, think there is a version of that for being a public figure, a version might be we kind of overrate the impact of what we tweet today, but we underrate the impact of what we've tweeted, you know, in the long run. And look, I actually think that's a healthy give and take, right? Like, I, I think you can be super ambitious while, you know, not necessarily having to pick some of these crazy fights or anything like that online. And that's kind of a, a natural check and balance you know, we are all adapting now to a new world where we are all public figures and and the norms for that are adapting, right? And, you know, we see this because you still have sports figures who are regularly, you go back in their old Twitter and they're saying terrible, misogynist, you know, racist things. And, you know, people just weren't ready for that. We are all now kind of like a Beyonce or someone where we can write something and it's permanent. Anyone can find it. And I, I think, you know, that's fine. Like, I think we all just have to adapt and the world is yeah. learning to adapt to that. But we're in an early phase of that. Yeah. So I think it's a healthy part of the world. Do you I have something that's sort of a dumb question, but maybe not. And it's basically how values transpose from certain industries. Like, do you think that in the NBA, like 10 years from now, people might be saying, hey, why are men and women separate? They should be 
and there should be like 50, 50 like do you, do you see a world in which sort of diversity and inclusion in that way manifests uh, well, I certainly think, you know, if you if you look, if you just observe the world in different industries as a whole, we are still in this arc of the whole movement around diversity and inclusion and all of that. And I, I think it's one of the things that's very common with these things is that in the early phases of these shifts, you're you're knocking out sort of the easiest parts of it, right? The obvious racism, the obvious discrimination. And when you get later into the stage of sort of working against those things, it becomes more subtle. It becomes more sort of systemic, subconscious. These types of things are, are just much harder to root out. And I think some of the tension we're seeing now is just that people are realizing, well, if you look at the numbers at tech companies, obviously diversity and inclusion, we haven't solved the problem. We're a long way from it. Why haven't we done that? And I think a lot of it is because we're starting to now, we've, we've sort of like mined some of the easier things, and now we're bumping up against a much harder systemic issue, which is just going to be more challenging to get through. But the important thing, I think, is that, you know, you have the numbers you can measure and you keep sort of working against it. Yeah. But certainly it's not going to be easy, and I think we're going to continue to see sort of yeah. the, this whole thing has been co-opted into another force, which is this big culture war that yeah. we're involved in now. And certainly that is elevated by social media. And, you know, so those forces together make, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, the world is miserable right now. It seems terrible. And I think that's what we're all feeling and going through. How does the the culture war end? that's, That's a tough one. I certainly think we're early in the phase of, you know, trying to come to grasps with what is good in public discourse and what is bad. But I certainly think that public discourse on Twitter, you know, this sort of like, hey, you know, one side signaling to their people and everybody jumping on them. Like we were like clearly, oh, okay, this wasn't the sort of nirvana of healthy public discourse that we thought it was going to be just by. I mean, I think tech went in with this like uh, somewhat naive idea of just like, hey, open dialogue, uh, open flow of information. And it's going to be great. Right. But, you know, the whole thing about every plan, um, you know, is great until you you meet the uh, enemy. And, you know, human nature (laughs) and all those things are interacting with it where I think this sort of very elemental form of public discourse that we've encouraged on social media has very clearly run into some challenges. And so my my sense is that the next version of iteration on public discourse on things like Facebook and Twitter and things like that will be to uh, try to introduce more structure in the conversation that might be like, look, hey, this sort of massive, you know, everyone in the town square shouting thing might not be super productive from a public discourse perspective. And so one area I think is obvious is, okay, maybe we need to break it up into smaller surface areas for a healthier discourse. You know, I think one challenge with this sort of like open market where, you know, now on Twitter, especially where they've chosen to accelerate the rate at which your tweets are sort of pushed into other people's feeds like you might like something and if i follow you now i see that and you know with retweeting and things everything is given this like acceleration but what happens is the context is stripped from it right i see things from people i i don't know who these people are i have no interaction with them they see stuff from me they have no sense of who i am they've never interacted with me in the the real world this sort of a contextless free conversation is just a very dangerous thing 
Yeah, there's like no friction to hate somebody, <laughs> to like get angry at somebody. Zooming out a little bit, we're talking about ambition. I want to talk about learning a little bit. I mean, if, if you look at your your career, you've been exec at uh, Amazon, at Hulu, at Oculus. You uh, you know went to went to film school. You, st- you know, Flipboard started started your own company. What sort what sort of ties those threads together? What sort of general principles have you thought about your own career strategy? Mm-hmm. Do you think ties them together? Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say I have a very specific thought out strategy, and maybe you know the more I progress in my career, I'll start to refine that, but. In the past, I've generally tried to follow my areas of interest yeah. and then try to work with, I think, smart, ambitious people because I think ambition is very contagious and you want to be around uh, those types of people that will push you. And then at a macro level, I think trying to be in areas where I feel like there's a lot of change happening so that there's a chance to make a lot of progress in a short yeah. amount of time. And you just kind of just ride those waves as far as they'll take you. And so you may not always like you may jump on a wave and you're not sure where it's going to take you. And it may throw you off at some point. I think if it's moving generally in the right direction, you'll probably end up somewhere interesting. Um, The other piece is that I just I want to continually push myself to uh, learn new things. You know, going back to film school after Amazon was really like a hard reset where I went from, hey, you know, I'm. I'm managing people and managing teams. And then the next day I'm making coffee on a student film set. You know, I'm at the bottom again. You know, I I think we are moving into an age where more and more of us will need to continue to learn throughout our careers. And actually, the best thing about being a student, the best thing about college life for me was just this absolute focus on pushing yourself to be learning. You know, like I think there's a lot that's wrong with higher ed and certainly a lot of other people, smarter people have talked about that. I think one thing that's underrated about being in college is, you know, being in an environment where every around, everyone around you right. is studying and you're on this like weird class schedule, which pushes you to learn subjects on a fixed schedule. Like, I think I want to have that and maintain that throughout my life, not just uh, in that, you know, four years. Yeah. When you think about concept of like your, you know, personal moat or skill sets, and I think about it like, what's Eric Torme moat? What's the Eugene Way moat? If Tyler Cowen says his moat is specializing as a generalist, is that something that is unique to Tyler Cowen? Well, certainly lots of things are unique to Tyler Cowen. But like, what do you think about, like, do you also think like, you specialize as a generalist or do you feel like you have a comparative advantage in like a couple or a few different categories? Or how do you think about your own personal moat? And then what do you think about the concept of specializing as a generalist? Well, I certainly like the idea from Tyler about specializing as generalists, but I think you can go either one of two directions, both of which are fruitful. Either you can specialize as a specialist yeah. or you can specialize as a generalist. I think you probably don't want to be caught in the middle where yeah. you're not really specialized in anything, not really generalized enough. And so, yeah, so what does it mean to specialize as a generalist? For me, I'll take my sort of like personal history. I do think that, you know, so I double majored um, as an undergrad. I did, you know, English. I also did industrial engineering. So there's sort of a little like, you know, like left brain, right brain type of stuff. I've tried to carry that throughout my life. You know, I spent some time in tech and I started off there doing a lot of like spreadsheets and number crunching. And then I was focused on business strategy. And and then I went over to the product side and then I went to film school. I've always tried to sort of like bounce between those two sides. And I think my, if I have any moat, it's probably in that that's sort of a unique, I guess, yeah. combination of skills. I mean, it's more rare yeah. in general. You know, you don't see, run into as many people. And so I try to use that to the best of my ability. And I do think that there's a overlap, 
Uh, you, you tend to spot patterns uh, across different fields. You know, I think the, the very idea of the, the Renaissance man, you know, like when that term first came up, I always thought it was amazing in that time that you would have people who went kind of deep on all sorts of things like painting and science and, and everything. And I think one thing that's lost as we've moved away from that model is that ability to spot patterns across fields. I think, uh, you know, I think one of the things we were going to talk about is, is my reading yeah. strategy. Let's we can jump into that now. And I think it's helped with the Kindle becoming a technology. So the way I read today now is I buy like a lot of books. I probably have like a couple hundred books on my Kindle. And, you know, even if I'm not ready to read a book, but I, someone recommends it, I'll just buy it and have it in my library. I've tried to take this sort of like uh, modern newsfeed idea and manufacture kind of my own feed across many books. So now with the Kindle, I can carry many books with me. And I'm reading them in parallel, a lot of books in parallel. Like I'm reading probably, I don't know, 20 books in parallel at a time, sometimes more. I do try, you know, it works better with nonfiction. And I try to always read at least like one chunk at a time, whether it's a chapter or some logical unit. So it's not um, super discontinuous to me. And so what I'm hoping to find are those sort of like crossover (laughs) points of inspiration. When is it worth reading a nonfiction book versus listening to a podcast with the author versus talking to someone who read it? Oh, that's hard to say. It depends on the book. You know, I think a lot of people will tell you that a lot of nonfiction books maybe are a little padded. And so, hey, if you just listen to a podcast with the author when they're on tour, you can get the gist of the idea. I think that's often the case. But some authors write at a very concise, interesting level where I find it fruitful. Uh, The other thing, I think a lot of readers are like this now. The later you get in life, the more willing you are to just abandon books or just skim through them if it's boring and not holding your interest. You only have a finite number of books you can read in your life. So maximizing that time is important. If you're reading something and it doesn't hold your attention, um, it's fine to dump it. I don't do it with fiction. Fiction, I think, it's still hard today to keep the thread of all the characters and the plot if you don't just plow through, straight through. If you try to read multiple fiction books, like I, I found it gets very confusing. I do think at some point we'll probably get to a mode where we have something like, you know, on TV, when you watch an episode of a show like Game of Thrones, you're like, gosh, I can't remember who these characters are. They'll have previously on Game of Thrones and they show you a very concise summary and you're like, oh, okay, I remember that character. Okay, probably something's going to happen. I think at uh, some point we'll have that for fiction books where we can just be like, look, what have you read so far? We're going to give you a very concise summary of it so you can just like jump back in your place. We don't yet have that. So, yeah, so I'm reading nonfiction books a lot in parallel, and then I'm taking a lot of highlights and notes as I go. And then after I'm done, I can go back and review my notes and highlights of the book to sort of just like lock it in. So my reading strategy is kind of like my approach to my career mode. It's like, hey, let's, uh, let's try to go broad and cast a wide net and see if there's some synergy between something I've read in this book and that book. There's more of a chance, I think, of building a moat for me, at least, in that than there is in saying, okay, I'm only going to read books about nuclear physics for. And it also, the sort of wide approach relates to your belief that career outcomes are probabilistic in some sense, which means you need to take multiple swings at bat, and perhaps the more skills you have, the more varied bets you can take. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's that's true. And also, look, if, if you look at the average career or the company tenure in the Valley. I don't know if you have the stats, but I've heard for startups and a lot of companies, it's like two years now that people are at companies. So you can see, right, your career is now going to be made up of many, many different experiences throughout your life. It's a portfolio approach. And also in tech, 
because we're early in this phase of tech sort of permeating the world, things are moving very quickly. Tech is changing industries very quickly. So I think it is harder to have that like one long career at one company. So we do have to take a more continuous approach to our education as well. So one of the blog posts you wrote about, by the way, Eugene Wei's blog is fantastic, and he's been writing in it for almost two decades, eugenewei.com? Yes. So definitely check that out. In one of your blog posts, you mentioned that you wish there was sort of a, a TV show that was almost like Top Chef, but for every industry, like a, a Top Chef, for example, teaching someone who has no idea how to cook, or a Top Practitioner teaching someone who has no idea how to do that practice. So if, if you were the guest on the show, if you were the participant on the show, which topics would you want to be taught by who? Wow. <laughs> and a big two or three that come to mind. Like for me, it'd be you know, Steph Curry in my jump shot, perhaps, or Nas <laughs> in the studio. Or... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, you would probably want to pick a real diversity of experts in that area. I don't know, like if I were younger, maybe I would pick uh, some sports figure, but uh, I'm not sure that's like as useful for me at this point in my life, yeah, even though it would, be, it, would be, it would be fun. I do think that... What, my my interest in that idea is really around just like modes of learning. Like what are sort of generalized modes of learning that make us better self-learners along the way? So, you know, I, I think it's more about just being around anyone who's really good at what they do for a while. You know, honestly, I would just want to shadow them <laughs> for some period of time. I actually think that, uh, you know, one of the things that we were going to talk about around education was just around you know, how I might reform that. That's and actually it relates to actually a bunch of things that I've been thinking about tech. And you had said, hey, you know, how do you spot undiscovered talent? What are the arbitrage opportunities? One of the things that Jeff Bezos did at Amazon while I was there, and he still does it, I think, is he had this shadow. Yeah. Just like one young exec who follows him around for a while. You know, the idea of apprenticeships and that type of thing was actually very common in an earlier age. But we don't really have that anymore in tech companies. Now, you relate back to the tenure of employees at companies being very short, and there's less and less incentive for companies to even spend time training their employees. Like, if you're going to leave in two years, why am I going to try to make you a better executive and things like that? And so what I think that's overall led to is a shortage of good executive talent in the Valley because we just don't spend any time really on teaching people. You have people become CEOs of companies who have no experience. They have no model for how to do it. And it's super challenging, right? And one thing that was really interesting about the shadow idea and apprenticeship is I think we tend to think that shadowing is good for sort of crafts. Like if you used to be a blacksmith or something, you would apprentice with somebody and learn it. And and that that might not work as well for sort of like white collar work or knowledge work. But I actually think that we should test it more. Like, I I just think that even though I never shadowed Jeff directly, just being in a lot of meetings with him, I picked up a ton about how he thought. And, and I also just think like, we really, really underrate how much people pick up, you know, just habit wise from observing other people. So I just think at more companies, if you wanted to increase the ranks of your um, exec talent, and you wanted to strengthen them, one thing I would suggest is, Kind of like in medicine where you do your residency, I would have a young exec follow around a senior exec for like a week, just shadow them to every meeting, watch along as they like go about their daily activities. And I think that would be way more effective than most of the training I see today. It's interesting. We're sort of told a couple um, 
you know, sort of contrasting points in our career. One is that everything great compounds and, you know, play the long game and, and invest over time. The other is um, you don't want to prematurely optimize. And if you find a rocket ship, go, go get on it, whatever seat and, you know, embrace serendipity. And it's sort of an interesting tension in, in people's careers is, hey, when do they or even just as they think about building their own moat, when do they say, hey, no, I'm doubling down on this. This is going to compound over time. Or, hey, I don't want to prematurely optimize. There looks like a rocket ship or embrace serendipity. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that concept or that tension? Yeah, you have to. Um, I think everybody's going to be a little different because on the one hand, there are sort of like secular trends, exogenous trends in the world where you're like, oh, okay. Clearly, this is going to be a big thing. And if I'm just in that general space, I'll be carried along by the tide. But I also do believe in sort of people finding that thing that is going to just drive them internally. It's a balance, right? Like you ask any writer, they'll say half of writing is just you just got to write, right? You can't just wait for inspiration to hit you. And I believe that very much. Uh, You have to show up and do the work. On the other hand, I also do think, look, if you can find something for yourself where work and play feel similar, you're more likely to achieve flow state more regularly. And I just think, based on my own personal experience, helping more people achieve flow state is a way to really sort of like multiply their productivity in a huge way. And so I think that's the balance you have to find. You know, you yes, you want to be in a secular growth space. Also, you got to find that path to your own flow. If you uh, if you could wave a wand and change anything about our education system, are those your two answers in the sense that you would help people find their flow sooner, and you would have people be more like shadow based education or action, you know, more like participatory? Is that your answer? Those, yeah, I think those would be two of my answers. Another thing, I just think about the education system we have in the U.S. Beyond the obvious, which is that like we have many many people who are deeply in debt. And that's not a good thing when it comes relates back to the risk reward thing we talked about. You know, people aren't able to take risk when they're deeply in debt. The last thing I would just say is, look, the education system tends to move pretty slowly uh, in reaction to the market and the world. And I just think that, like, I came out of undergrad and I was like, oh, like, you know, felt like a lot of school was just pushing everyone to be um, an investment banker or a consultant because, you know, you just didn't have a feel for what careers were available. You didn't have a feel for what opportunities in the marketplace would be really fruitful and where you should be spending time thinking. And I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to have school, you know, better shape people for that or give people more input or information about that. And I think a a model, like a healthier model generally for education in the future is one where maybe you don't have to go to four years of undergrad. Maybe it's two years or three years, but you have this idea that you'll go back for more education or learn more uh, continuously throughout your career. You know, every couple of years, you'll be spending some time learning. I think that right now in tech, what you have is, hey, tech is, you know, software is eating the world. You have a lot of economic advantage in being thrown in that and companies who win are making just extraordinary amounts of money. And so it doesn't matter if they don't spend time educating their workers and things like that. But if you were to approach it from your own personal life perspective, uh, you have to kind of watch out for your own career, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's great if you're in the middle of a company and like things are going well. But if you aren't learning continuously, at some point it's going to hurt you. The company doesn't care at that point. So I think it's important always to have a separate sense of your own progress, uh, learning-wise, skills-wise. Yeah. 
how do you think about how you might spend the next five or 10 years of your life? Like, how, how are you thinking about like, what frameworks are you applying to? Is it sort of just, Hey, I'm going to follow my interests and see where that lies. And if so, where are your interests drawing you to? I guess I still, of course, I still have this idea of, you know, I want to work with great people. You're going to spend so much of your time with them. You want to be around people you enjoy being around. I, I am a little pickier now that I'm older about where I think I can get real leverage personally and comparative advantage. I think that the hard thing in the process of looking at companies is there's information asymmetry in both directions that hurts, right? Like, on the one hand, the company's trying to learn about you and whether you're going to be the right fit for them. And they're yeah. sort of like, it's a mystery, right? They're going to tackle it with interviews and background checks and, you know, try to get a sense of you. On the other hand, you have information asymmetry as it comes to how the company operates, what the culture will really be like. And in many ways, people don't talk about that, but it's actually very hard to understand the dynamics inside a company. How does yeah. power work? How... How is their culture around building things? You know, how will you fit in with that? And so, you know, I have to balance that with, you know, the freedom that comes from doing my own thing. Right. And, you know, there's, there's good and bad on both sides of that. When it comes to the space, I mean, I think as a generalist, I find a lot of problems will just be generally interesting to me. But I still, given my background in media and tech, I like that overlap that yeah. space where media and technology overlap is i think a space that you know you have people in silicon valley who still don't really understand hollywood and vice versa and so i, I think there's probably something there that's fruitful for me yeah it is interesting because when there is information asymmetry but you can look at something like Glassdoor and uh, maybe have a reasonable interpretation where, where you don't have that is when you're evaluating people uh, you know, who, who you should spend your time with because Glassdoor for people doesn't exist yet yeah. and you can do references but how many people are you really going to reference maybe 5 maybe 10 and maybe, maybe 20 if you go really intense but that, that person is interacting with hundreds maybe thousands of people you know yeah. it's interesting that information asymmetry as relates to people sure it's, it's always going to be challenging and Obviously, you know, the, the later in life you get, I think you, you know, you have less time. So you're trying to be more efficient about learning yeah. who are the right people for you to work with and who you're going to resonate with. And so I think that's an understudied area. It's just like, hey, how do you have the maximally efficient conversation? How do you break through that? I don't know if you ever like, um, I think they're called like hypotheticals or conversation cards. You have these like little things where you're like, Hey, instead of asking someone, what do you do for a living? How's the weather? You know, talking about the sports, what are those questions that will get you to a deeper understanding of that person more quickly? I think that's an underrated skill in yeah. conversation. One question I've been asking recently is like, is how do you want to pie chart your time in like six months from now, a year from now? You sort of, you, you learn a lot from how people want to spend their time and especially as it relates to how they're spending their time currently. Because yeah. if it's drastically different, then hey, there might be a transition in their near future and you can see if that sort of aligns with oh i also want to spend my time you know yeah. reading or speaking or whatever it is right right no that's a good question so zooming out you spend a lot of your time at the intersection of technology and media culture so i want to get your sense if you were running the following companies what's something non-obvious if you have it that you might you might do with the company and maybe we give it a 30 seconds or a minute and if you don't have it we can we can just skip so the first one i'd say is is medium what do you do if you were running medium? Hmm. Uh, that's an interesting one. I think there are two things at medium that I would look at and question, I guess. One is just that 
I think while I recommend reading as an activity, it's a great thing. I just think a secular trend is that a lot of people don't like to read or don't read that much. So how do you counter that trend generally is a challenge for them. And the second thing is just that there is a sense, and maybe this is just my medium, is that most of the articles that they email me to read every day, like there's a very strong sort of like self-helpish tone to it. And I think there's just a somewhat of a limit to how much of that I can absorb each day. And so how do you broaden the mix of content on there? If you treat Medium as a content bundle right now, it feels like a bookstore, which is just self-help books and crypto articles and, and everything. And I don't know how to like broaden or diversify that, but I think that is a limiter on just how often people want to go to that well. So yeah. How about the New York Knicks? Oh, that's that's an interesting one. Maybe a better question for uh, Sam Hinky, who uh, uh, I talked to. But I, I do think, like, look, the NBA, since they play in the NBA, one thing that you know about the NBA is that that's actually a very skill-driven league in terms of outcomes, the way the sport is structured. Much more skill-driven in terms of outcomes than, say, the NFL or Major League Baseball or hockey or soccer like that, where there's just more variance. And so I think the hinky approach was just like, look, how do you win a championship if that's your goal? In the NBA, you have to have a couple highly skilled superstars because yeah. if you look at the history of the NBA, the superstars win out because skill tends to win out in a seven-game playoff series. And so, you know, Hinky's approach of, hey, we got to get many shots at one of those types of transcendent talents is one approach to it. So I think as the Knicks, if you realize that that's how the league works, you have to figure out, What's our approach going to be that's unique yeah. to getting that superstar talent? Uh, it's probably different in other sports, you know, like football. Like there's more room <laughs> for money ball types of approaches. It's harder in basketball. Maybe, you know, maybe the one thing that you would consider, and I don't know if the ownership rules or league structure would allow that, is to think about recruiting. Like if you can't actually draft a superstar, how do you recruit like a LeBron or something to the team? And maybe something there that New York has is, hey, you're close to the media industry. Yeah. Hey, if LeBron wants to extend his career there, how can we help on that front? Or maybe it's like, hey, we're going to take some sort of equity model approach. We want to give you a little bit of equity in the Knicks if you come play for us for a couple of years. You know, you can easily do the math on whether that's worth it. But I think in the NBA, you have to, you yeah, have to approach started. it that way. Yeah. How about Spotify? Well, Spotify is starting to make that transition into taking on more and more of the role of a music label. That's probably the way I would have gone about it. You know, I think it's always just been inevitable that if you're always beholden to music labels, it's not really that profitable uh, business, even if you get really large. But, you know, it's music. You have to have the whole catalog. Yeah. It's hard to think of how else Spotify could have gotten scale uh, without first just sucking up and dealing with the labels for a long time until they got scale. Once you have scale, right? Like a Netflix has done this in the film industry. Once you have that, right. you can reverse the tables a little bit on them. Yeah. And they're starting to go that direction. And so I think that's, that's one thing. The other thing with Spotify, they've started to dabble a little bit with podcasts and things, but right. you know, broadening the brand probably gives them a little more optionality in the long run. Um, yeah. I would look at doing something more serious on and, on that. and even though music is complicated, I get the general sense that if you have the relationship with the with the customer, you can then sort of back into being a label, whereas it's harder to be a label and then you know 
all of a sudden develop like a you know relationship with with, with customers, a direct relationship. What would you do if you were, if you were like a place like CAA for example that just works with talent but has no customer relationship? Should they stop everything they're doing and build a customer relationship, or and not just CAA but like book publishers? I don't know other other sort of things that manage talent but don't have customer relationship. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I actually think that you know if you're a CAA. Or if you're any sort of middleman type of company, like a label or things, you do have to figure out how you can go direct to consumer. I just think the future is direct to consumer, but it's a little bit of a race, right? Like, will CAA and the labels and the studios and networks be the ones that help artists go direct to consumer? I mean, it seems like a, a tough transition to make, an unlikely one. For one thing, they're going to have to own the tech stack in a way, like because the way to go direct to consumer now is to own your own tech stack and. Those companies tend not to be best at that. But I do think, you know, if you're progressive at CAA and you're thinking about, hey, how do I actually anticipate how the world's moving? Is you look at your portfolio of talent and you have to say, look, we actually want to help you go direct to your fan base and your consumer. And they do have enough talent where they might be able to aggregate and build common technology and platforms and things where their talent can help each other out and things like that. It's probably more likely that some new type of enterprise comes along to do something like that. But look, I I think in the past, I would have said the creative class is unlikely to free themselves from those shackles because they tend to think gig to gig. They tend to think of just their own careers. And, uh, you know, how do you get a bunch of creatives to band together and think both strategically about you know their careers and the careers of other creatives that come after them and to understand technology you know you have things like title which, say, which yeah. take a shot at it um, which aren't quite there if you go back even further in film history you had united united artists in the 30s where you know charlie chaplin mary pickford a bunch of the stars of their day were like hey why are we working for the studio we should do our own studio and they formed united artists but you know they didn't have a, an edge in running a studio but now you have people like Clooney who sold a tequila company. You have yeah. Jessica Alba who runs her own, you know, enterprise. And I think you, you see talent looking at that and saying, wow, they've made more money doing yeah. that than I'll ever make. Kylie Jenner, acting. billion dollar. Kylie Jenner. Whatever, yeah, company. all of these. And so I think that is the first step is that you have to have a creative class where the mentality shifts to thinking about equity and not thinking about, hey, I just need to make my next movie. Like, how do you think long term about that? Is there a world in which title could have upset one of the big three record labels or could have joined them? Well, I, I think it was hard. It's hard because right now in music, right, a lot of those artists who started off and did title together, a lot of their music was beholden to the labels already. So they couldn't wholesale pull their music yeah. off. So they were always going to be a subset of music plus some exclusives from like Beyonce or Jay-Z. It's just tough to pull that off. But I think the, the fact that they were willing to try is a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's totally wrong. I think if they partner, you know, I think at some point you'll see the right creatives partner with the right technologists to do something that will actually change the dynamics of the creative class moving forward where they are going direct to consumer. I mean, it's still crazy to me, right? Like if you're a Taylor Swift, you're Beyonce, and you, you go play a sold-out stadium in a city, like, do you know who all those fans are? Do you know when the last time they were at your concert? Do they know how many of your albums you've bought? Like, they still don't actually have that one-to-one relationship. Yeah. Uh, but that's the only relationship that the fans care about right. and is meaningful to them. 
And technology will provide a way to scale that direct-to-consumer effort. Whether it's news, whether it's music, whether it's media, video, is there any company you know, outside of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, you know, Google that has a chance to be even you know, a $10 billion standalone? Like does, does you know, Spotify have a chance? BuzzFeed, Hulu, like, do you think any of these will be independent or is it just too hard? Well, it's it's different if you go sector by sector, right? Like music, we do know that owning the whole catalog is imperative, so it's hard to imagine something standalone being massive. Right. massive. I think all of music is like fifteen billion or twenty billion. I don't know, but, right. it's, but it's not enormous. Yeah, video is a little different, only in that in video there isn't this sort of idea of having to own the whole catalog. I mean, everyone's going to sort of have their own IP. So if you have your own interesting IP portfolio. You can sort of run with that. And um, if it's unique enough in some ways, people don't treat video completely as substitute goods. I think it's a little dangerous to rely totally on that. But video is the one category where I could see something happening. And I, and I still hold out hope, I think, that you know, as a one-time film school student and, and uh, as someone who has great empathy and sympathy both for the creative class, uh, I just think it's, it's a healthy thing for more creatives to be relating directly to their fans. As we just discussed, you're a big reader. Now, now we're talking fiction. For me, fiction, I'm really big on contemporary fiction. So, you know, Jonathan Franzen, Dave Foster Wallace, Salman Rushdie, George Saunders. I know you like Saunders as well. Donna Tart, And then on the classic side, like some Russian, Russian stuff. But I haven't gotten into like Faulkner, for instance. So what am I missing? What have you taken away from Faulkner? <laughs> well... You know, Faulkner for me, I read a lot of Faulkner, Wolf, Joyce in college. I mean, it was just one area of English that I found interesting. This, the whole stream of consciousness style of writing certainly can be intimidating, I think, for the first time reader in a way. But what was sort of magical to me about that, and especially The Sound and the Fury, which is my favorite um, sort of Faulkner novel, was that I think it did something that only literature could do, that only that medium could do, sort of try to replicate what it is like in your mind. You know, that sort of like random collision and jumping around of thoughts, the jumping throughout time was just uh, magical. And it was the closest, I think, in terms of fiction to just making you as a human understand, oh, like I'm not alone. Like there is... (laughs) someone who understands the human experience in a way that really closely replicates like, the experience yeah. uh, in my mind. And, and look, I, I, I don't necessarily push any particular type of fiction on anyone. Taste in that can be very personal. I do think, though, that everyone should have that one grand novel or author that they read throughout their lives. One of the reasons I like The Sound of the Fury is I think it's a novel that I will read for the rest of my life over and over and every time it will continue to reveal something new to me. And it grapples with all the largest issues of life, right? Like starting with death, really, which it's, it's sort of obsessed with. And, you know, what it is to know another person, uh, that struggle, I think that every human understands the struggle of just living and, yeah. you know, finding purpose in life and, you know, the day to day. And so I think everyone should have that novel because, you know, there is something different about revisiting a novel versus just continuously reading the latest New York Times bestseller. Right. You know, that novel becomes your friend and something that you're familiar with. 
And so every reading is something different. I have that the same with, you know, like films that I'll watch over and over and things like that. So I think, you know, like it's, it's fine. We should, you know, like I know we have this appetite for novelty and all the marketing spend in the world is usually around, hey, here's the newest album, the newest book, the newest movie, always around that. But uh, everyone should have their classics. Yeah. So what's a, both on the book side and on the film side, a sort of quake book and a quake film, something that really changed your, changed your mind about something or changed how you, how you view the world? Well, you know, I already mentioned The Sound of Fury in the novel side, and I think that's definitely one that... Actually, I'm very excited because I finally tracked down a copy of... Uh, you know, Faulkner had always said, hey, I, I wish at the time that I, uh, he had written the book, he wanted a way to color code the text so that you knew what time frame each part of the text took um, place in because it covers mul- a couple days throughout history, but it's mixing them together in a way where you don't know sometimes like what time period it in. Right. And so I found a copy of this like special print of the book that color codes by time period, the whole novel. So I'm excited to go through that again to see if it reveals new things uh, to me. In terms of film, it's interesting. I would say, you know, I often recommend Tree of Life as a semi-recent film that is grappling with the largest yeah. issues of life, right? It's it's obviously about Malik's childhood growing up in Texas. But, you know, he begins with the beginning of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> he, there's a you know scene in the beginning with dinosaurs. You know, you're like, why is this movie starting with... But he really wants to start with, actually, the beginning of the universe and then take it to the afterlife. Yeah. And... And so that's those are things that we all as humans sometimes grapple with, right? Like, why, why are we here? Like, why does this all exist? Uh, yeah. What's the meaning of my life? And where am I going? What happens after I die? And all of that. And he just reissued a Criterion version of the movie where he recut it. And I think for him, that work is one where he's probably going to be cutting new versions of it for the rest of his life because it is, you know, his way of grappling with the mysteries of the universe. We're going to move to overrated, underrated. The phrase, trust the process. Probably underrated still, especially, you know, like uh, when Hinky and, and them came up with, with the 76ers. You know, I, I think it's moving towards the point where everyone's going to adopt it. You're starting to see this, like there's a whole plague of tanking in the NBA and people are like, hey, we're going to change the rules around that. So it, it's starting to become like widespread. And in the NBA, you tend to see ideas move quicker. But for now, I mean, look at where the 76ers are right now. With a lot of young talent. They're probably going to be able to recruit some star free agents. So I think it worked out very well. Equity-based financing in people. Interesting. I guess for the broader public, I would say maybe underrated in that I don't actually hear that many people talking about it yet. Among the people who are really into it, maybe it's slightly overrated because I think the models that I've seen for it so far they often seem to stem from the fact just that there are a lot of people who are in debt after school or um, I don't know if you've seen in um, baseball, there's a version of this. BLA is an organization that an ex-baseball player started where he finds minor leaguers and says, hey, look, I'm going to pay you this amount. If you make it to the majors, I'm going to get whatever, 10% of your future earnings and things like that. Um, But part of the reason that model works is kind of like part of the reason that why it would work for college students today is that they don't make that much money (laughs) and they go deeply into debt. So I would, of course, rather see young people not have to be that deeply in debt and to be a little better compensated all around so that, again, like we said, they can be entrepreneurs, they can take risks, they have more optionality in life. But, you know, look, I think the idea is interesting. I think if crypto 
you know, mainstreams in the future. It makes schemes like that more possible. Yeah. Like I said, a broad scale level. And, you know, so in the long, long run, maybe it's still underrated. Dave Remnick's decision to not interview Steve Bannon at the New Yorker Festival. I, well, I don't actually know how it's rated. Like, it's hard to rate. Right, right. Agree or disagree? <laughs> I, you know, I would not have done it just because. Not have I, interviewed or not have postponed? I would have not have interviewed Bannon on stage in New York. First of all, I don't know if any, you know, the listeners have ever been to the New Yorker Festival. This idea that these kind of like festival things are, you know, these like huge sources of deep intellectual conversation is just false. I've been to some of these things before. It's like an an hour talk. It's not going to go that deeply in depth. And, you know, the number of people that are going to see it is very small and things like that. So I just think, look, you have a platform, you know, there. Is that the place to potentially, you know, like pin him down and get him to change his ideas? You know, it'll be interesting to see because Errol Morris just did a documentary also about Bannon. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know how successful it will have been. And this ties back to our earlier sort of conversation around healthy public discourse around these things. I just think there's, you know, it's a little naive to think that that was really going to accomplish anything. That's my opinion on it. I, uh, on the other hand, I I do think that, look, it is possible to probably go too far uh, in the direction of not letting ideas sort of just like out there in the marketplace of ideas. And this idea that, you know, sunlight is the, the best disinfectant for ideas still has some validity, but, you know, I don't know that. That's In that vein, do you think the moral panic about moral panics on college campuses is overrated? That there's not yeah, enough diversity? Know, that one is hard for me to sense because I'm not on the campus environment anymore. So there's just like this like weird sample bias to the stories I read about it. I can't really tell how big of a problem it is. You know, that would be an interesting one to, to um, get more data around or to ask people on campuses or things like that yeah. who are closer to all of it. I tend to think, you know, everyone maybe like I tend to think maybe it's over it's overrated a little bit only in that I don't know, even when I was an undergrad, there were all sorts of protests and debates on campus and things like that. Everyone's sort of in this like frame of mind at that time of their youth to think that, "Oh my gosh, you know, we're revolting against this idea and everything and I think every generation may just have that on campus, and this is just their version of it, but it happens to be taking place in an age where social media amplifies those stories and makes them seem bigger. Like, we didn't have social media back then, so I can tell you about a bunch of protests that happened on my campus. No one heard about them in the country, and I ultimately think they didn't really lead to anything. So, you know, from that perspective, I might say it's probably overrated. I'm going to ask about a couple of people, but I'm going to move away from the overrated, underrated, because it's weird to, to, to rate people. <laughs> What's something non-obvious that you've taken from Tyler Cowen or what has been most inspiring? Well, you know, related to the topic we were just talking about, I, what I most admire about Tyler, I guess, in a way is that he is a little bit of a like a good-natured intellectual. You know, I feel like so many intellectuals, especially on Twitter or in their public forums now, just seem a little bit mean-spirited or like, you know, people are just like beating people over the head with um, their thoughts. And Tyler has never seemed like that to me, right? He'll pick fights and ideas, but there's a way he does it in which is so good-natured where you're just invited to, I think, debate in 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 a spirited way. 
without it being, you know, wrapped up in uh, emotion and things like that. And look, I think that's, that's highly underrated. I, I think often about the wisdom of the court jester, yeah. that whole philosophy, right? You know, we, we talked a little bit about George Saunders. I think that's the biggest thing I take from George Saunders is like the role of humor as a critic and as a humanist, right? Uh, you know, if you're going to go on Twitter and just blast, put somebody on blast, how do you expect them to react, right? If, you, if you're an honest intellectual, I think your deepest goal is the truth. And, and second to that is you want to bring other people to the truth. And so I just think if you put someone on blast, like, let's just be honest that your goal is not to actually bring someone around to your style of thinking. And so that's something I think that Tyler does very well. What's something you most admire about Kevin Kwok or what's something special you take from him or or see in him? Well, a lot. I think Kevin is just sort of to me, I mean, he has a little bit of the Tyler thing in that, you know, he's like sort of, he'll disagree with me, but in a good natured way, that makes me think. And he has just like a very unique mix of interests, you know, everything from his interest in Cairo to crypto and things like that. There's probably something binding all of that together. Systems thinking, Brad. Yeah, it's something like that. Um, I haven't quite, you know, like put my finger on it. But just the fact that I think he forces me to think about the same types of problems in different ways is just, you know, a great thing. I want to close perhaps by having a question to the audience. The, the, or not a question as much as a sort of request for the audience. And the request for the audience is twofold. One is something that would sort of selfish, that would improve your life or that you, you want people to, hey, check out your blog or, hey, you want people to send you ideas for, for X, or, 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 you know, one request for the audience for, for your life. And then one sort of perhaps piece of advice or suggestion to the audience for something that you think would improve their life, like take a three-day meditation or read this book or do X. Hmm. Look, from the audience, I'm always interested when people just reach out to me out of the blue with their sort of really strange but deep-held beliefs. I think that's my favorite thing I'm hearing from my readers is someone will be like, hey, you know, I read something you wrote. Here's something strange that I wrote or that I think that I haven't shared before. And people will give me these odd theories. And I love that stuff. You know, I think uh, from that perspective, discovery of great ideas and things is still an, an unsolved problem. And so if readers, you know, want to just ping me, however, on Twitter or email and things, I always love that. As to what I would recommend back to people, hmm, I don't know if I have one thing that comes to mind, but if I take my own, I guess, life as a model, I think we probably live in an age where if you look at all of history, this is probably the the best time in life for many people. Not everyone, obviously. You know, everyone's circumstances are different. Um, but if it, I think many more people um, should take a deeper risk with their life just because the costs of doing so are, are quite low at this time in history. There's just never actually been a time in history for so many people. Um, we need to obviously extend that to more people so they have the chance to do that. I, I had read this book long ago in high school called Born to Rebel, written by this Harvard prof. And he was looking at birth order and its determinant on personality. And Born to Rebel was this idea that youngest children are the ones who cause revolutions. Uh, you know, Copernicus and the Copernican Revolution. And part of it was based on this idea that if you're the oldest child, you emulate your parents. 
as a strategy for gaining their resources and this youngest child since you have older siblings who already do that you got to find your own path and because i was the oldest child at the time i was like oh gosh this is terrible i'm never gonna actually come up with anything interesting or revolutionary i'm always going to be you know the classic oldest child is good grades you know respectable job but doesn't really leave an imprint in the world and i think reading that novel is always just like consciously pushed me <laughs> to try to take less beaten paths for myself and to push myself into those spaces of discomfort so yeah I, that's that's something i i always love to see people take that leap yeah. personally i think it's a great note to to close on eugene thank you so much for for coming to the podcast it's been a fantastic episode thanks for having me if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 